Is it wrong that I was just thinking, oh, they'll be the first to go in the earthquake? <laughs> Probably a bit, a little yeah. bit. All right, don't live in Richmond. Not because it's not fun, but because it's all on sediment and river delta, so it'll be liquefied, unfortunately, fast. This got dark. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is October 26, 2017, and this is episode 58. Politicos is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we're at Politicos Pod and support the show at patreon.com slash politicos. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. Today we're going to be talking about the government's fiscal update. We check in with a former Alberta education minister about his petition to end Catholic schools in the province. And we do a roundup of quick takes. But first, we're going to thank our premier sponsor, Lindsay Teds, for helping make this show possible. And let's also give a big shout out to patron Liam Midzane-Gobin, who's at MG underscore Liam on Twitter. He let us know earlier this week that he accidentally ended up in a Diane Watts campaign rally, I guess in Prince George or something. He tweeted at us to ask us for some questions that he could throw at her. And I quickly scrambled and said he should ask her if she regrets the terrorist in your bedrooms flyers during the 2015 election, I believe it was. And more seriously, I guess what her positions are on urban issues like road pricing and decriminalization. She did mention tackling the opioid crisis in some of her launches. So I think seeing if she'd be in favor of decriminalizing all the drugs would be something fun to put her on the spot on because she hasn't really said how to tackle the opioid crisis yet. But The bigger point there is if you're ever finding yourself face to face with a politician, the thing you should be doing is tweeting at us. (laughs) There's also for those other people who are our patrons, we put up a little secret announcement on our Patreon. So if you didn't get that by email, make sure to check there, particularly those of you in the Vancouver area. The rest of you hold on and we'll do something public probably in the new year. And One final announcement before we actually get into the show. It's a happy 100 days of governing for Premier John Horgan. He hasn't failed yet. (laughs) Segment one, Bill's tricks and treats. The finance minister today put out Canada's fall fiscal update and turns out Bill Marneau's doing fine. But also, the government of Canada actually has a fair bit of money coming in too. Specifically... Growth is up from previous projections, so we've got a little extra cash coming in, and it's no sooner in the door than heading on its way out, as they've also announced a bunch of new spending in this one. Some of it sounds more like spending they had wanted to do, but given they'd already blown their deficits to $25 billion in the spring, they kind of push some of them back. And Because now- fiscal restraint's really this government's main area. Once you have a little bit of extra room, then you can put a little bit more money into the child benefit program that they have, and they're putting a little bit more money into income working tax benefits. Also in there is their small business tax proposals, which aren't actually costed, or they haven't budgeted for the revenue from that, which suggests in a year or two, they'll have another bonus to spend however they want. Yeah, they actually spend a fair bit of the document relaying out their proposals for the small business tax changes, but I'll just refer everyone back to our previous last couple episodes, I think, on those ones. But yeah, so the two main headline items are the child benefit proposal, the working income tax credit, which both actually fairly solid 
policies I don't think anyone's going to really be complaining about. Everyone seems to like both of those. Giving money to the working poor and parents is a generally positive, everyone likes that kind of idea. The bigger narrative around this for me is just the timing of the rollout of this seems awfully convenient as a, hey, look over here, they're shiny, the deficits aren't as bad as predicted, and we can throw a whole bunch more money at stuff. Don't worry about French villas and small business tax changes. Well, the timing is a little convenient on that. It's also just the time when the fall fiscal update comes out, and these aren't the sort of things that you know, just happen on the fly. So I think it's more just fortunate for the government they can change the story rather than any sudden contortions around it. They do have the opportunity to choose to release it this week rather than in another week or two, or even just holding it back while the biggest heat was on so that things had calmed down a little enough that they could change the channel effectively. In any case, it's a overall pretty positive message for the liberals at a time when they needed one so yeah overall this was fairly well received but there was nevertheless some criticism uh mostly around continuing the deficits rather than using some of this newfound revenue courtesy of of better than expected economic growth to actually cut into the deficit rather than just spending it all right away and that is always kind of the looming question on this is when are the liberals actually going to seriously get the deficit under control that, well, they created? They haven't committed to anything yet. They still don't have any timeline to balance the budget. And this document does predict a smaller than expected deficit next year and the following year. But in the medium term, I guess, the best they're going to be hoping to do is lower the debt to GDP ratio which I think is often a better measure since all of the talk of governments should be run like your personal bank account is just fiscally ignorant of how countries work when they can literally print money. So as long as their economy is growing, they can sustain a deficit that's not too big. Yeah, and the debt to GDP ratio is definitely a better way to look at it. And also focusing on any like a given 365 day period for the budgets to be balanced probably not the best way to go about it and most economists i believe recommend going on a business cycle sort of balance but with the economy doing well we're we're not at the peak of the business cycle we're definitely on the way up nearing it and that means we're not doing that sort of balancing either that would be better in terms of a how to look at balanced budgets and part of the issue and i know um, Lindsay ted's had raised this one is but why is the government putting this deficit out there to you know boost the economy when the economy is both doing well and at the same time the bank of canada is raising interest rates to cool off some of the negative effects of that booming economy and kind of keeping it from overheating and you know why is canada's monetary policy and fiscal policy going at opposite directions it's almost like to properly do keynesian economics you can't have a democratic government that it's always operating about five years behind schedule where they should have been investing under the Harper years or the late Harper years, and he was doing starting to do a bit of it, 
I needed to do a lot more. Now it's the lag of, oh, we will elect a government finally that will invest and things are turning around. And Yeah, in the, in the typical Keynesian approach, you paid down the deficit in the boom years and that's now and we're definitely not doing it. If anything, we've turned the taps further open. But I do think we have this infrastructure deficit in this country. One of the, A couple of the things John Horgan talked about wanting to do in his first 100 days was get started on some of these big infrastructure budgets. We were just looking at his, he actually did make pledges and we were thinking about going through them of what he said he'd do in his first 100 days. And most of them are just like start consultations that to his credit, he's done, but that's not a big bar. But he wanted to start work on replacing the Patello Bridge. He wanted to extract money from the federal government for that. And I don't think that's forthcoming yet. Yeah, and infrastructure spending is great, but where is it? This all here, this isn't investments. This is current consumption that we've just increased. It's not a long-term investment. You know, we're not getting useful assets out of this. We're not replacing the Patello Bridge with some of this money that we're now getting that we didn't think we'd have. And the whole balanced budget thing is, yeah, it's often oversold on how important it is. But if you're going to be running a deficit, it'd be better to be running it on long-term investments, not present consumption. But what about the middle class? I did do a little control F on the fiscal update document itself. And the phrase middle class does appear 58 times in a 78 page PDF. I don't know if that's above average for the liberals, but it felt high considering many of those pages are just table of contents, title pages. So it's really only a 50 page document. So you have the word middle class appearing on basically every page in there. Does Justin Trudeau care enough about the middle class though, Scott? Or is he maybe focusing a little bit too much on this vague concept, which has always been his brand? The childcare benefit is definitely targeted largely at the middle class. So yeah, I think expanding that does kind of play to that strength. The WITB is more aimed at the those working hard to join the middle class portion of the standard liberal line. But yeah, in terms of those two things, I think it's largely on brand for him. And it's also good to return to that brand of middle class when you've had a week or two of stories about Bill Morneau, who I can't imagine has a good concept of what it's actually like to be middle class. Like, how do you deal without French villas and numbered corporations to hide all your wealth? It's just a life not worth living. The only other open question on this one is, did they manage to keep the uh, graphic design costs below 200000 on this one? Or are they on their way to uh, its seat in the last budget? Judging by the PDF, it was pretty straightforward kind of document like I could pump out just in Word and hit that export to PDF button. That said, it probably cost a lot more than that because it's a government document they put out. I hope it's not 300000 That would be just be embarrassing at this point. But you never know. Never doubt the liberals to find a way to play right into the conservatives' hands. Yeah, I don't think we talked about it when that story broke. But yeah, that did seem a little on the high side. And I've heard it sold as kind of a, oh, we need to make sure, you know, people are engaged with this and it's not just a boring text document. But if you're the type of person who's actually going to be going and reading the budget, you're probably not the person who needs to be drawn in with pretty pictures. Apparently, 
Canada Revenue stopped approving a disability tax credit in May for people with type 1 diabetes, and this has led a health charity, Diabetes Canada, to get it up in arms and call it a clawback of the benefits that their members were taking advantage of. So it looks like these changes could basically mean an extra $1,500 in costs for people suffering from diabetes. Yeah, this is yet another one of those just bad news tat stories that seem to be coming out against the liberals. And it's never a good look to make it look like you're trying to uh, squeeze a little money out of people suffering from a disease. Once again, this probably was one of those things, like the proposed change to the employee benefits, that probably didn't originate in the political wing of the government and probably came up through the civil service. But it's not a uh, good look for them. And yet another in a long string of stories where they come out looking like they're, well, going after the little guy. And it's another one where the liberals and the ministers seem really flat on their foot to responding to. They were pretty quick on backtracking the CRA over those employee benefits. But here, at least on the initial stories, no comment yet. Even a, we'll look into that, that doesn't sound right, <laughs> kind of hesitation. It seems like they could have said something off by now. And so I guess it just kind of makes you wonder if Bill Morneau actually knows what's going on in the agencies he's in charge of. And there's something to be said for your ministers being a bit hands-off. Well, the, the CRA does have its own minister, but typically it's works very closely with finance and it's kind of a, the junior partner in that relationship. Well, and Diane Leboutier, who's in charge of that, doesn't have anything more to say than Bill, who we didn't even mention it last week, and I forget exactly when this happened, but there was the entire press conference with Bill Moore, no, but Justin Trudeau was there and he just kept interjecting to go, oh, no, no, I'm here. You don't need to ask your questions to Bill. You, you can ask the prime minister. <laughs> reporter after reporter was wanting to go, no, we want to ask Bill Moore, no, about his French villas and all this. And Justin Trudeau was just awkwardly like, no, I'll take the questions. Just I'll I'll take them. But didn't sound like he really answered them anyway. So there's something going on in that cabinet room, but... Everyone still has their job, at least for another week. And they might have it a bit longer because the Liberals ended up voting down an NDP motion to close the ethics loopholes that uh, Marno has been exploiting. It's not unsurprising these sorts of opposition motions usually go nowhere, but it's never a good look for a governing party in the middle of an ethics scandal to vote against better ethics rules. The NDP, I think one of the things they've been doing well recently, and they've been a bit behind in getting into the media because they're in third party and they've just finished their leadership race and Jagmeet Singh is now trying to figure out how to run a national political party and also do a cross Canada listening tour. But the thing they've been doing well, I think, is getting pointed motions onto the order paper. A week or two ago, they had one about National Pharmacare that they had to force the Liberals to vote against. And they can start staking out positions this way to say, look, here's the hypocrisy of the Liberals. Here's what we stand for. 
And that's a good way as an opposition, besides being the conservatives where you can just yell at the liberals for being tax and spend liberals, which is the typical conservative line. To be fair, the liberals are doing a very good job of selling themselves as doing that. But the NDP has fewer tools open to it because it doesn't really want to criticize the liberals for these tax changes that they don't think go far enough. And they can criticize the ethics problems, though. And this is a good way to do it by saying, hey, we'll fix the problem for you. Just agree that it was our idea. Yeah. And then when 2019 rolls around and the election's on, they can run all, you know, look at all of these things the liberals voted against. So I guess in totality, the fiscal update was overall a pretty good news story for the liberals. But I was actually listening to the Beaverton podcast that I just discovered they have a podcast. And I assumed it would be like their website or their TV show, which are all just fake headlines that are almost a little too on point at times. But no, it was actually just a political podcast of comedians shooting the shit about top news stories. And this week's episode was their season finale, so they won't be back until the spring, which is a great time to discover their podcast. But they were talking about this segment and they were trying to, or this topic, and they were relating it to almost bringing out the one good thing you do you did when you get in trouble for something with your partner like oh i forgot to mow the lawn but it's okay because i took the garbage out yesterday and they're pointing out that never really works like you're still in trouble so the liberals may have taken the garbage out yesterday but they forgot to mow the lawn listen to the beaverton they're funnier than i am you know you really need to stop recommending people listen to our competitors I am pro podcast promotion. The more people that listen to podcasts, the more we get. And with that, moving on to our second segment, David King has an idea to end Catholic education in Alberta. We have a little interview to play with a former minister of education from Alberta, David King. Let's throw it over to that. I think he does a good job explaining what he's about and why he's launched a petition to call for a referendum in Alberta. We're sitting down tonight over the internet with David King. Maybe you could start, David, by introducing a bit about yourself to our listeners and your experience, I guess, firsthand experience with Alberta's education system. Certainly, Ian. First of all, uh, glad to have this opportunity to talk about an important issue. Uh, my interest in it is longstanding. From 1971 to 1986, I was a member of the Legislative Assembly in Alberta. And from 1979 to 1986, I was Minister of Education in Alberta. Uh, four years after that, in 1990, I went to work for the Public School Boards Association of Alberta as their Executive Director. And I did that to 2010. So I spent another 20 years uh, working with locally elected school trustees, uh, both public and separate school trustees, although obviously most of my work was with public trustees. And since my retirement, I have continued to be interest in, interested in education. So what's the background for those who aren't aware? You mentioned briefly their separate school trustees and the public school trustees Obviously, there's this entire separate Catholic school system. Where did that come about, and why are there parallel systems in Alberta? 
Yeah, very briefly, uh, in Canada, the Constitution says that every province continues the system of education that it had at the time that it entered Confederation as a province. And so you've got uh, a few provinces that have separate school education at the present time. That's Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario. You've got provinces that had denominational education in the past and did away with it. That's Newfoundland, Quebec, and Manitoba. And you've got provinces that never had separate school education. Uh, British Columbia, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island. The reason for that in 1864, 1867, when this was being talked about, uh, was that separate school education existed in Quebec and Ontario as a result of the Battle of the Plains of Abraham in 1759. And both of them were very anxious to continue that separate school system. It was important in those two provinces. The two other founding provinces, uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, didn't care the least about the issue. And so they were happy to have a provision that says you carry on whatever you brought to the table when you became a province. In 1905, when Alberta became a province, um, they came into provincehood with um, a school system that the feds had imposed on them because when Canada bought the Hudson's Bay Company lands in 1860, in 1870, there were no people here. There was no community. There were no civic systems. So when Canada bought the Hudson's Bay Company land, they imposed on it what had been in Ontario and in Quebec. 1905, when we became a province, there had been settlement. We had a territorial assembly. Their view was that the people in the in the new provinces should be able to make that decision. And they recommended to the federal government uh, that uh, Alberta should become a province with only a public school system. They recommended that the separate school system not be continued post-1905. Mr. Laurier's government rejected that. There was a terrible conflict inside the then liberal government. Sir Clifford Sifton, who was the uh, Western lieutenant for Laurier actually resigned over the issue because his view was that the provinces should be created in the way the territorial assembly wanted it. Uh, and Mr. Laurier was rejecting the advice from the territorial assembly. So uh, that is how we come to have separate school education. Basically, it started in 1759 with the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. Uh, you've launched a petition with inclusive, diverse education for all at ridea.ca. Uh, why was it time to do this and what are you hoping to accomplish? I'm not sure that it was the right time, but it became the time. I've been concerned about this issue for more than 20 years. Uh, but in the last couple of years, there have been a number of uh, challenges that have just brought this to the forefront of public attention in Alberta. And um, I set up the site in January, thinking that post-election, um, we should raise the issue as, as much as we could in the minds of the public. So school trustee elections are finished now in Alberta. 
and uh, we're trying to give the issue more public profile, and we step into an environment uh, in which there have been a number of political issues over the last 18 or 24 months that make people more interested in the issue. So there are a number of arguments in favor of this. Do you have a sense of, I guess the big one would be, how much money could this save? Well, according to uh, filings with Alberta Education, and they're a couple of years old now, the cost of administration in the separate school systems across the province is in excess of $60 million. So if you unified school divisions locally, uh, you would presumably free up that $60 million. I personally would not speak of that as a saving, except inside the education budget, because I would certainly reallocate that $60 plus million dollars to other educational purposes. I'd hire more teachers. I'd hire more school counselors. I'd hire more special education aides. I'd hire teacher librarians. Um, I might put more buses on the road. I don't like to talk about it as being a savings to the provincial budget because I really hope that any government that was in hand at the time this happens would take that money and reallocate it within the education budget. But if you start with a 60 plus million figure for administration that could be reallocated, there are in addition other savings. Uh, We've got situations where two buses are running down the same rural road uh, collecting students who are going to two different schools. We have got underutilized schools where either system is losing the economies of scale. Um, We've got situations where schools side by side cannot offer a program because neither one of them has enough students to offer that program. Yet if all the students were in one school, there would indeed be enough students to offer a program. So if you start with the 60 plus million dollars that could be redirected in the system, Uh, There are millions more that could also be redirected in the system in a variety of ways that would be helpful to students and helpful to the community. You mentioned the Constitution when you were talking about the background here. Aren't these schools protected by the Constitution and wouldn't changing it be a big uh, political problem, especially given our reluctance to reopen the Constitution? Well, I I think you've struck the heart of it. Um, This is indeed a constitutional issue. Um, And some people would talk about it as a constitutional right. I would call it a constitutional privilege. A hundred years ago, only men had the right to vote and women did not. So men had a right. But at a point in time, women started saying, let's stop talking about this male right to vote as a right, and let's talk about it as a privilege, which it was. Um, I think that there is a constitutionally protected privilege here, and that should be part of our conversation. Procedurally, it can be changed quite easily. Newfoundland and Labrador demonstrated that, and then Quebec demonstrated that, in 1997. 
it is correct to say that if you want it done, it has to be done by the federal government amending legislation. But the federal government has adopted the position that education is a matter of provincial responsibility and that on this issue, they will do exactly what the provincial government asks them to do. And so when Newfoundland and Labrador petitioned the federal government to do away with denominational education there, the federal government did exactly what the government of Newfoundland asked to have done. And the same was true in the case of Quebec. And Mr. Chrétien, who was then the prime minister, applied a three-line whip when these votes were conducted in the House of Commons, and his position was that on a matter of provincial jurisdiction, when the provincial government asks that something be done, the federal government will do exactly what the provincial government wants done. So procedurally, it's pretty straightforward, and that's been demonstrated by two provinces in the recent past. The big issue is the matter of will, And that's one of the reasons why I propose this petition. In my view, this is such an important issue that it shouldn't be decided by partisan politics. I wouldn't ask any party to make a commitment to this issue. What I would ask them to do is to make a commitment that they would have a province-wide referendum and let Albertans, as a whole community, make the decision. And then I would expect a provincial government to follow the outcome of the referendum. So this is one of those issues where I think citizens should lead. Well, one of the things people might ask you is you were education minister. Was there any, was there just no appetite for this at that time? Or was it just something that you didn't feel there was any political or public will for? The circumstances seemed to me to be quite different. We're talking 35 and 40 years ago. At that time, the funding of education in Alberta was quite different. And one of the consequences was that separate school education at that time was pretty much restricted to larger urban centers and particularly growing urban centers. There was virtually no separate school education in rural Alberta. And in the urban areas uh, where there was separate school education, there also tended to be a growing population, a growing youthful population, and a growing tax base. So the urban centers could carry two systems then without the consequences that are being experienced now. And there was virtually no separate school education in rural Alberta, which meant that there were none of the pressures of fragmentation that we are experiencing since 1994. The second thing that is different is that while separate schools were certainly thinking of themselves as Catholic, they were less committed to Catholicism than they are now. 35 and 40 years ago, there were many separate school boards that hired non-Catholics as teachers. My recollection is that there was a separate school board that had a non-Catholic who was the superintendent of schools. And they, they looked and they operated in many respects 
much more like public schools than is the case today. I'd say it's virtually impossible to be hired as a teacher by a separate school board in Alberta today if you're not Roman Catholic and if you don't bring with you a letter of reference from a priest. The third thing that is different is that the ecclesial leadership of the, of the Roman Catholic Church was simply not as involved in the activities of separate school boards as is the case now. Um, there was just none of what we've experienced recently with the bishops interjecting themselves in the life and work of separate school boards. So uh, I guess formalistically, maybe I should have been as attentive to it 35 years ago, uh, but it wasn't playing itself out on the ground the same way that it is now. Well, on that topic of the growing controversies, I guess, with the church, the big news in Alberta, as you'll probably know this past week, was this statement by the Council of Catholic School Superintendents about sexual education and how they don't want to promote homosexuality or have gender or gender identity be disassociated from biological sex. And this, of course, was met with flat-out rejections from uh, David Egan, the current education minister, and Premier Rachel Notley slamming it with some incredibly strong language, I thought, talking about sexual health programs that deny science, deny evidence, and deny human rights aren't going to get any public money, and then going after them for normalizing an absence of consent. And then, of course, that gets met with more fire and brimstone from Jason Kenney, who's running for the UCP leadership. And so we're sort of seeing this bifurcation, this partisan polarization around this issue. Do you think that could help or harm the petition and the efforts you're trying to push forward? Who knows whether it will help or harm. That will play out. I was a little bit surprised by the strength of the response from Mr. Egan and Ms. Notley. But on the other hand, I can really understand their frustration. We're muddying the, the waters about the nature of, of separate school education are being very badly muddied. It is correct to refer to separate schools in Alberta as Roman Catholic separate schools. That's proper nomenclature. The problem is that people read much more into the words Roman Catholic than should be read into them. What that term means when we say that they are Roman Catholic separate schools is simply that every elector in that system has to be Roman Catholic. But there's nothing more to it than that. These schools are not established by the church. They are a civil institution. They're not owned by the church. They're not funded by the church. Separate schools in Alberta are funded by all Albertans who pay taxes, regardless of your religious or your irreligious outlook. They're funded by everybody. They are owned by everybody in the prince. Uh, I've said they were created by the law of the land. The trustees are elected by a civil electorate. They're not appointed by the bishop. 
canon law does not apply to Roman Catholic schools just because in law they are called Roman Catholic separate schools. And, and yet, as Mr. Egan has experienced and as the Premier has experienced, there are all kinds of people, including Mr. Kenny, who wrongly say that because the electorate is Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church has a right to be decisive uh, in the decision-making process of these civil institutions. Separate schools in Alberta are a completely civil institution. The only thing that legitimizes the use of the words Roman Catholic in the term Roman Catholic separate schools is the truth that every single elector in that system has to be Roman Catholic. You, you could be Protestant and perhaps send your children to a separate school if the separate school will enroll them, but they're not under any obligation to enroll your child. And even if they enroll your child, even if your child is being educated in a separate school, if you're not Catholic, you cannot vote for the trustees who are making decisions about the education of your child. With some of the recent controversies and the recent election, do you have a good sense of where the public is on this issue? Is there any polling data out there? No. Uh, to my knowledge, there's no polling data, although perhaps others are doing it. The reason for the website and then the reason for the petition is because we want to gauge support informally first. We want to try to discover from among those supporters who might be prepared to be more active in creating a campaign of public awareness. If we want to do good polling, we need to raise some money, and we haven't done any of these things yet. So the petition is a very preliminary stage of what I hope will grow, become widespread in the province, get well-organized, acquire the funds that will allow us to do some good survey work and some good research work uh, in order that we can uh, deliver this campaign uh, more positively and completely uh, to all the people of the province. Well, I guess the la last question that I have is sort of a tangential topic, which is perhaps the other elephant in the room, which is the private schools that exist in Alberta. Because like BC, there's a number of independent schools that get a subsidy from the government. Here they get 50%. In Alberta, they get as much as 70%. And these are straight, many are straight up faith schools run by churches. And like, I guess, the Catholic schools, the Roman Catholic separate schools in Alberta have been very resistant to some of the uh, pro-LGBTQ positions of the government. They don't want to permit gay-straight alliances despite requirements too. I know your petition and this focus is entirely on the Catholic separate school issue, but do you have any thoughts on these private or independent schools and the subsidies they receive? Yes, I've certainly got thoughts. Um, you open up a rather large issue in itself. Um, I said earlier, I'm a Democrat. I prefer education systems that are inclusive rather than exclusive. And every private school is exclusive, either as a matter of preference or of felt necessity. So I've got a problem with private schools on the basis that they are exclusive rather than inclusive. 
I believe in public school education because one of the explicit purposes of public school education is to be a model of a civil democratic community. There's no private school that exists with the explicit purpose of being a deliberate model of a civil democratic community. So my question is, when kids go through 12 years of education uh, in systems that are exclusive and do not have a felt need to model a civil democratic community, you know, what's going to be their attitude and how are they going to function as adults in a civil democratic community? So I start with a, with a philosophic problem. I personally have no problem providing some funding to well-qualified schools because they are doing some public good when they teach math, language arts, or social studies. But I wouldn't make it 50%, and certainly not more than 50%. You know, I personally, I might say 30%, uh, because the other 70% represents that which they are not doing that is vital to our community. They're not inclusive and they're not performing as a deliberate model of a civil democratic community. Now, having said all of that, you've got the additional problem that whenever private schools are approved, they should be inspected regularly and they should be evaluated regularly by the Department of Education. Um, and uh, they should, that, that inspection and regulation evaluation should be done without fear or favor. There are some private schools in Alberta or BC that are getting funding and they shouldn't be getting it. They're getting it because public servants generally under the auspices of a quiescent politician um, are fairly loose in their inspection and their evaluation. Uh, finally, uh, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and where they can sign the petition if they want to get involved? Certainly. Uh, if they go to ouridea.ca, that's all one string, all lowercase, uh, they can uh, find the website and sign the petition. Uh, they can reach us there by email, info at ouridea.ca. Um, if they wanted to call me personally, they could call 780-716-5402. We've got a Facebook page, which is Our Idea, and uh, we've got a Twitter account, also Our Idea underscore CA. Moving on to quick takes. We've got one of our first indications of what the candidate slate's going to look like for the 2018 municipal elections here in Vancouver as sitting councillor Andrea announced she will not be running so you can stretch that name off the potential list and it's interesting because her name was thrown around a decent amount as someone who Vision would be looking to nominate once Gregor Robertson leaves municipal politics. Reimer was a fairly popular councillor. She did come in towards the bottom, I think, of Vision's last slate, who got onto council. But that said, she used to be a municipal green, I think, on Parks Board before joining Vision and coming onto council, and has generally been seen as a pretty strong voice there. People were saying 
between her and Jeff Meggs, they were the two heavy lifters of the Vision Council. And now with Jeff Meggs gone to Victoria to work for John Horgan and Andrea Reimer not running for re-election, Charlie Smith in the Georgia Strait was, I guess, feeling a little provocative and penned this column about, well, maybe it's time Vision just folds up tent and voluntarily says, yeah, job done. (laughs) Or maybe not quite job done, but step out of the way and maybe put the weight behind one city or another force to potentially stave off a NPA sweep if there's a divided left, as happened in the by-election. As far as heart takes go, that's pretty far down the list of uh, good ones. And yeah, Vision's hurting, and it's probably not a coincidence that one of their more respected counselors decided to pull the plug shortly after a pretty bad by-election loss, but Vision's not going to be going anywhere. They're almost certainly going to contest the next election, and whether popularity is suffering, they have a fairly solid municipal party apparatus there, and parties tend not to like to shut down. Hell, the Sotreds are still technically around, limping along with five people or something and they're just not going to go anywhere until they at least suffer a pretty bad defeat if they get completely shot out of council uh, in 2018 yeah maybe then but it's a little early to start penning the obituary or encouraging the suicide of vision i am with you on all of that the one Note is just Reimer reportedly had decided earlier in the summer that she wasn't going to run again and just decided to wait until after the by-election, probably because saying in the middle of a by-election campaign you're not going to run for your party is a knife in the back of your candidate. So keep holding that back seems believable. Maybe she's just saying it out of convenience, but yeah, parties don't tend to go quietly into the night. They need to die at the hands of the electorate before people give up on it. Cope is still around, Yeah, as an example. Getting knocked down to two seats didn't stop the BC NDP or the PCs uh, federally from hanging on for quite a while afterwards, and at least one of them ended up coming back to power, and the other sort of did after it merged in with another party. Well, also on Vancouver City Council news, Tonight, actually, it started on Tuesday, I guess, but it's continued today as they're having hearings on short-term rental rules. Essentially, the Airbnb regulations are up for public debate and over 90 people, including friend of the pod, Patrick Meehan, and I guess since I'm shouting out other podcasts, Podkeep Our Land co-host is there tonight. I don't know what his personal position is. Maybe he'll give some feedback on that on his next episode. But the debate is mostly centered around the proposals from the city that homeowners and renters would only be allowed to list their primary residence on sites like Airbnb. They'd have to pay a licensing fee. And you could not rent out secondary suites such as basement apartments or laneway houses or secondary homes. And the idea around all these regulations would be to just make sure People are only renting out bedrooms and not taking rental properties off the market. Yeah, both proposals seem fairly reasonable, uh, especially given the problems with the rental market right now. So yeah, lots of people have shown up to speak. 
gather a bunch, 400 bunch of dance, but I saw on Twitter shortly before I started recording that they were only on speech or something like 40 of the overall list, and this is day two, so it's probably going to go into next week sometime when they reconvene to hear this. Most interesting for me that I saw out of the people who've made speeches is, I guess, the Airbnb representatives actually applauded Vancouver for this. They said, it's been a pretty good process. They're fine with all of the proposals so far. They went as far as to say they'd be in favor or at least open to a hotel tax type thing that I guess Quebec has brought in where Airbnbs are subject to uh, extra tax that if you go to any city, you generally pay a accommodation tax for your hotel night. And the idea is that tourists should have to pay a little bit to support the city services. And Airbnbs are often exempt from that because they run on a weird sort of underground economy. But Airbnb, being a relatively smart company, says, no, we want to work with municipalities and not totally do an Uber and try to run over most of them. So it looks like a general consensus has actually come around some issues, just despite a lot of people having opinions on them. Yeah, and with Vision's still majority on the council, they're these are very likely to end up passing, so we'll likely have these sometime soon whenever people finally stop talking about it and the, they go through the list and actually end up uh, voting on these. And for the last bit of municipal news, the Mobility Pricing Commission has finally launched its independent public consultations this week. This has been kind of a long-term project by the mayor's council here to try and get mobility pricing for the area to try and deal with some of the congestion problems because, well, we can't build our way out of it and traffic really sucks in Vancouver. This is something John Horgan's been asked about because he's the one who took tolls off of two of the Metro Vancouver bridges and everyone kind of went, well, the mayors are doing this mobility pricing thing, does that mean tolls will be coming back? And the language is all very, it won't come back the same. The tolling system there was, was very unfair. It only tolled some people on some bridges for some of the routes. That was dumb. So let's come together, come up with a smart strategy, and we'll bring that in in the future. And maybe the ideal situation would have been to maintain the existing tolls and then go to whatever is recommended. But they won the election on arguably this one promise among anything else. So we got rid of the tolls, even if it's a short-term thing. I would have much rather them seen throw tolls on the other bridges until they can get something worked out in a more comprehensive regional approach. Because, yeah, that was part of the problem, is people were driving to the other bridges to try and avoid the tolls. So making that small step would have been, a, I think, good first step moving towards a better regional pricing system. It would have had a infrastructure expenditure, though, to put up the camera systems at all the other bridges. Yeah, but thankfully there'd be a bunch of revenue to now pay for that. And I think we've talked about how the traffic volumes on the Portman have shot up since we got rid of this. But it's still going to be a bit of a tricky needle to thread for the NDP on this one because... It's not a toll, it's a congestion charge when we ran against tolls. It's a, it's a difficult message to sell, and I'm not sure the nuance is necessarily going to be that easy to communicate. It's one he can blame the mayors for, though, because this is something 
being driven by TransLink and the mayor's council. And there's nothing provincial politicians love more, as we saw the liberals do time and time again, than to blame the mayors or put the problems on the mayors. Of course, the worst thing that could happen is them to come up with this thing and then John Horgan to turn around and say, well, we'll have to put it to a referendum at the municipal level. I think he's smart enough not to do that, but but the, the you never know. province will need to get involved in this if they're going to end up having it work at like a regional level. So it's he, he's going to have to get his hands dirty on this one way or the other. Their website has the details on where the consultations will be happening, how to get involved in that. And we'll throw a link in the show notes. There's also a report on there about it. Disappointingly, doesn't even ballpark what we'd expect the revenues to be or any of that sort of stuff. Although if you look at other cities that have implemented this sort of stuff, like Stockholm has a system where they, I think, mostly toll their bridges because it's a bunch of violence, so it makes it super simple to do. Yeah, they pull in roughly 100, 110 million Canadian um, and toss them back basically a third of that to run the system. So you can't exactly use the revenue, assuming we get something similar to, say, make transit free, but there'd still be a lot of gains there nonetheless, and both in terms of making the roads work better and then figure out what to do with the revenue on something else. When I looked at the consultation website, it looks like they're at a very initial stage where they're basically just asking you to put down your email if you're interested. They don't really even have possibilities up there yet. So I'm not surprised they don't have estimates of how theoretical amounts of money because they probably don't want to put those out there when it could range from what we were making under the two-toll bridge system to, I guess there's an upper limit because if you toll everyone $10,000 a day to drive Vancouver roads, no one will drive. But maybe that's a good thing. One of my favorite parts of the report, I'll just throw this out there before we move on to the next story, is they list a bunch of problem spots in the region there and you know there's stuff like bridges tunnels the sort of stuff you did spet and then on point five is travel to from and around the north shore in every direction which if you've ever had to drive to the north shore you, you know that's a pretty accurate statement every time coming back from whistler yeah it's terrible i would dread visiting my sister when she lived there because the traffic was so terrible speaking of whistler i learned this past week that the reason BC's Family Day, if you didn't know this before, is offset from the rest of the country and the biggest group pushing to maintain that offset is BC's big ski lobby, which is apparently a thing. I think we've come across them once before, maybe on talk of the Jumbo Ski Resort or something like that. But it turns out under the BC Liberals, who I imagine were recipients of donations from ski hills, although I can't imagine it was that much because a lot of ski hills aren't that profitable. They put Family Day, our February holiday, on the second Monday so that it wouldn't clash with President's Day in the US or Family Days in other provinces. And the goal, I guess, was to make sure that none of the ski hills would be too, too busy. And they're actually pitching it right now is if we move family day to the same as the rest of the country, people won't be able to get great deals on skiing weekends because all the hills will be packed of Albertans and Washington Knights and Washingtonians, Washingtonians, Americans coming to our ski hills. 
and this is a legitimate argument being put forward to not change it. And this all comes up because John Horgan, I guess, was pondering this past week about moving family day, as he's talked about before, but also possibly ending daylight savings times because he threw it out there a couple of weeks ago. If people wanted BC to not do daylight savings time anymore, they should just email him. And he put an email out there. And apparently a lot of people did because daylight savings time is stupid. It's a terrible idea. We should, And we should strap it immediately. Or at least I like daylight savings times. I don't like standard time. I hate changing clocks, but I like late afternoons. I honestly don't care which one we go for. Just stop changing the clocks twice a year. It's saves basically no electricity despite being the apparent raison d'etre for it and the day after it always sucks and not just because you're tired but everyone else is tired so like traffic accidents go up the rate of heart attacks go up. it's just a terrible system with no upside because the sun doesn't care what time you set your clock by so listeners Email the premier and tell him you don't want daylight savings time anymore. And if you do want daylight savings time, stop listening to this podcast. I think that might be our firmest stance we've taken on an issue so far. Well, speaking of things the BC premier wants to hear about, uh, cannabis consultations are starting up and will also be ending soon. They government's given basically a one-week window to run their consultations, which is very quick for consultations. And yet, online consultations basically start are going to end on November 1st at 4 p.m. They're looking at issues surrounding the minimum age, personal possession, public consumption, impaired driving, personal cultivation and distribution. You know, the main headline items that all of these consultations are looking at. I took the survey actually earlier this afternoon, just before coming on, and that's how I know that's exactly what they're looking for. And it's a fairly quick... What are your thoughts kind of survey? Mostly saying, here's what the federal government is proposing. Should we go farther? At no point do they say the federal government has gone too far because I guess that's out of their hands. But on, for example, drug impaired driving, they're saying, here are the limits being put in by the federal government. Do you think those are enough or should BC add on additional fines? And I mostly noted, we don't have a good roadside test for cannabis. So trying to say, impound people's vehicles or throw them in jail for drug-impaired driving when you can't be sure they are impaired worries me as a civil libertarian, but there's lots in here to be a little bit worried about. The minimum age they're looking at is 19, but they do note there's some strong science saying it's probably not a good idea to be smoking a lot of pot until you're 25, until the brain is fully matured. On the distribution side, they're looking at questions of should it be sold in government-run stores, private stores, a mix? Should it be sold alongside liquor? It doesn't look for the most part like they're ruling anything out yet, but they're trying to rush really fast because they need to get the consultation done so they can start drafting legislation so they can get it all passed. So then if they have to build government stores like Ontario is doing, they can do it all by July 1st. Only thing to note is that not being able to actually legally oppose something has not stopped governments from saying no you're going too far because the richmond city council this week voted unanimously against marijuana legislation and are going to be sending the federal government a sternly worded letter about it makes me want to go smoke a joint in richmond as soon as it's legal just to spite them 
Yeah, Vancouver has the reputation of no fun city, but I, th- I think it's probably Richmond. Well, let's switch topics. And one of the things that's been an ongoing battle brewing somewhat behind the scenes and it's starting to spill over has been the fight over fish farms in BC and specifically the marine harvest fish farm in the north end of Vancouver Island has been under protest and occupation at times, I think for most of the last three months, but it's simmered below most of the mainstream news coverage by Indigenous protesters who are blaming this these fish farms for die-offs in wild salmon. And I think it's hard to identify any one cause. Obviously, climate change is playing a role in there and a number of other issues, but there is potentially, I'm not sure of the science, of issue with some of these Atlantic salmon fish farms that can bring in extra diseases that can spill out into the wild and cause problems with the environment. This one specific fish farm, well, a number around that region have worked with indigenous communities and developed agreements. It's always been opposed by the local nations and hence the occupations. The BCNDP had promised in its platform and is, I guess, sticking to it that it will uphold the UN Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People. And this led Agriculture Minister Lana Popham on October 13th to send a somewhat unprecedented level letter to the company saying, after they decided to restock the fish farms for next year and start moving on that, that that was a bit insensitive and probably premature given they haven't concluded their discussions with the First Nations, and she invoked UNDRIP as one of the, hey, this is the law of the land now kind of things. If you don't have free prior and informed consent, maybe not in those words she said, but that's the implication. You better be trying a little bit harder to consult. And this has a lot of the more business community and resource community on edge because they're going, oh, is this how the BC government is going to basically apply UNDRIP is exactly as it literally says, Indigenous people should have the free prior and informed consent for resource projects on their traditional territories. So there's that whole side of the story, but then there was also a CTV W5 documentary with one of the Department of Fisheries and Ocean Scientists, Dr. Christy Miller-Saunders, who expressed some concerns about this fish farm testing that goes on at the BC Animal Health Center, that's the provincially run laboratory in Abbotsford. Dr. Miller, I guess, worried about some of the statements coming out of there, whether the science was almost too favorable, I guess, to fish farms, or she questioned some of it. DFO at this point is saying their scientists can speak freely, which is a good statement. And the BC NDP, I think, had been critical of this before they were in government, and now they've announced that John Horgan will be appointing his deputy minister, Don Wright, to review the, quote, integrity of the lab and wondering if there was previous political interference in it. And the thing to note is that Animal Health Center is a fairly highly well-regarded research laboratory, it sounds like. So these two issues kind of come together where you have a lot of First Nations who are probably also questioning this lab and the liberals can immediately go, oh, this is just the NDP trying to crush scientists, to push through their political agenda, to kill resource projects, kill business. And the whole thing feels really messy and like there's not really a good path forward for the NDP. 
it seems like they're sticking to principles, but maybe having the agriculture minister send the letter might have been a bit overstep. Maybe having a bureaucrat and not have it leak out so publicly, which might have been inevitable. But there's a lot of mines in this area that the NDP is walking in, and it seems like they're trying to stick to both the environmental the and the UNDRIP promises they've made, and I applaud them for that. But things could go badly for them here. So we'll have to keep our eye to see how this goes. I know a number of activists I've heard from were worried that the NDP hadn't moved to shut down fish farms fast enough, and this might be their first step to do it. But if they move too harshly, they could find themselves in court like they almost did with a few other things like their initial discussions about Kinder Morgan or Site C. And they also have to avoid being called the no-to-everything party. Uh, the BC government also announced this week they're going to close the loophole surrounding Fitz-term leases and vacate clauses with the provincial rent control system. So right now, under how things currently are set up, certain lease agreements, if they have a vacate clause, if the same occupant then gets a new lease, it's considered a new tenancy and the basically rents can reset to market rate rather than the current allowable increase. And the NDPs announced they intend to close that. The initial comms on this were, I think, a little confusing because they talked about tying rent control to units, which has been, I guess, a long-standing progressive goal when it comes to rent control legislation in the province. But it doesn't look like this is going to actually happen, or at least that specific aspect doesn't look like it's going to happen, although that was kind of what it, some of the initial press coverage had of it. I think part of the problem is it's a very complex issue. The acts that this applies to are not simple and the effects are in how contracts are regulated. So it's it came down to what does the legislation actually say? And as far as it sounds like it's coming out, it's basically just as you described. For the background, the rent control in this province is if you have a month by month lease for a rental property, you can only have your rent raised at inflation plus 2%. So for this year, that was 3.7%. For next year, that'd be 4%. But if you had this vacate clause, the landlord could basically say, oh, Scott, you're out this month, but you're back in next month, even though you might not have actually left the premises, but you're now on a new lease and your rent is also 20% higher than it was a month ago. Well, actually, in this part, it's probably going to be 40% higher. There you go. This just keeps it to that 4% that it would be limited to for next year. There are still some caveats that if you go on a long vacation or like some reasonable Where you actually no if you longer actually maintain a tenancy sort of thing. Or is it if you vacate. You know, yeah. If you vacate for a while and or there's a trip involved or reasonable reasons that it seems like you vacated. So that makes sense, I guess. This is one of those things where I think the housing minister, Selena Robinson, has been almost a bit behind, seemingly, on the issue. And, I mean, housing is this massive clusterfuck of a file that I can't imagine anyone would be doing well with. 
but she's seemingly struggled. She had a very poor interview on CKNW you heard the other day. And it seems like this is an initial first step that a lot of people had been complaining about. And it's a quick, easy win that they probably could have done a couple weeks ago. It still has to go through the legislative process, but they'll get the NDP votes. I imagine the Greens will support this. It seems relatively controversial. But yeah, this isn't going to massively save, fix the rental crisis that's ongoing. But nor will it really screw with the incentives in the rental market, which is always the concern with rent control. So yeah, overall, probably a decent fit because it doesn't really make sense for like two people who occupy similar units but slightly different contractual arrangements having the results be massively different in terms of what the rent control does well there were two by-elections this last week at the federal level which gave us some sense of how each of the parties are doing potentially going into the election in two years the Less interesting, perhaps, of the two was the Sturgeon River Parkland riding just outside Edmonton in Alberta. This is the seat vacated by Rana Ambrose, who was the interim leader of the Conservatives and who stepped down in this past year. Unsurprisingly, after Rana had won it with 70% of the vote, the Conservative Dane Lloyd won it with 77% of the vote. The Liberals got 12%. After they had 15% in the last election, the NDP got 7.7% after 10%. And the Christian Heritage Party actually almost tripled their vote share from 1% to 3%. But I imagine they probably still got the same like 700 people out to vote. So Ernest Chauvet, who in 2015 actually spent as much as all of the other opposition parties combined in that riding, because none of them spent much money. The interesting thing is Dane Lloyd, who's the new MP for that riding, the Conservative. He's 26 or 27 years old. Wikipedia doesn't know yet. Some of the progressive groups I've seen out there are already trying to paint him as an extremist, pointing out that when he was 18 in 2009, he tried to form an NRA Canada branch. And he's since walked back saying he's not so pro-firearm anymore, but is on that sort of spectrum. He's also a Trinity Western University grad and fits in, I guess, with the reform end of the Conservative Party. And at, as one of the younger MPs will probably be around for a while since that's one of the safest seats in the country for them. The more interesting by-election, though, was in Quebec in the riding of Lac St. John. This is where popular Conservative MP Denis LaBelle retired, and the Conservatives were really, I think I'd heard them trying to spin this as, this was a Denis LaBelle riding. He's so popular, they didn't really expect to win or do well, and they didn't. Well, they didn't do terribly. The Conservatives still pulled 25% of the vote, but they got second after winning it in the last election. The Liberals, with Richard Ebert, actually took it with 39% of the vote, which is a pretty strong showing. This was lining up to be a four-way race with the bloc in NDP also being in the running. But in the end, the NDP dropped to 11% or about 12% of the vote after getting second place with 28.5% in 2015. And the bloc Québécois pulls 23%. So this is 
good news for the Liberals. They need to hold Fortress Quebec if they want to win another majority government. A very worrying sign for the NDP, given they just went from second to fourth place in a riding that might not be one of their top picks, but I think if the NDP wanted to win a majority government ever, these are the kind of things they need to be picking up the speed on. Of course, they've been in the midst of a leadership election, so maybe it wasn't a top priority to win a by-election, but must be worrying, and I can imagine the was Jagmeet Singh a factor question is ringing in the party headquarters. So let's hand you into a little interesting in that before... The Conservatives held it. been a long-time block riding. So the fact that they came in third on this one may kind of be, you know, yet another nail in the coffin that is the Bloc Quebecois. And for the, like, this was actually Lucien Bichard's riding, so it's, like, in some ways, very solid Bloc territory. But, you know, not anymore. Overall, as far as by-elections go, it's not a huge signal either way on where things are. But, you know, a pick-up for the governing party is definitely noteworthy. I think it was just to show that, you know, Andrew Scheer hasn't exactly won over Quebec yet. And, yeah, the Liberals are fairly popular overall nationally. And that has been Politos. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politos.ca. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PlayToastPod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send to us. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.